Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're glad that you're here. I would like to offer a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us. We're very glad that you are here, and if you have questions or comments about this faith or this congregation, please do see the knowledgeable and friendly people at the membership table and visitor table out there in the foyer, and they'll be happy to help you. If you have been coming to worship here for a while and you feel that this is your spiritual home, everyone in this room would be delighted if you were to become a member, and that involves taking a class and signing the book. So also, if you've been a member here for a while and you feel that you would like to step into leadership of this congregation, everyone in this room would be delighted if you were to do that, and please speak to me about how to start becoming more and more one of the leaders of this congregation. We come from a long heritage of faith communities that teach that there is a spark of the divine in every human being. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Please join me in our chalice lighting words. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. My name is Elizabeth Gray, and I'm your lay leader this morning. I've been a member of this church for many years, but nothing here is old for me. Each new day here in this community brings me the opportunity to learn something new, meet something new, or participate in a meaningful way. Our call to worship this morning is from Adrian Rich. My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who, age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. People ask, how do you call the Unitarian Universalists the church? Why do you say worship? What holds you together? You have atheists in there. You have have pagans in there. You have Buddhists in there. People with Jewish background, Christian background. Everybody calls themselves... Unitarian Universalists, surely no tent could be that large. And you say, well, yes, ours is. And one of the things that holds this particular congregation together is our mission. And that's why we say it every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Let us learn the revelation of all nature and thought, that the highest dwells within us, that the sources of nature are in our own minds. As there is no screen or ceiling between our hands and the infinite heavens, so there is no bar or wall in the soul where we, the effect, cease, and God, the cause, begins. 
I am constrained every moment to acknowledge a higher origin for events than the will I call mine. There is deep power in which we exist and whose beatitude is accessible to us. Every moment when the individual feels invaded by it is memorable. It comes to the lowly and simple. It comes to whomsoever will put off what is foreign and proud. It comes as insight. It comes as serenity and grandeur. The soul's health consists in the fullness of its reception. Forever and ever, the influx of this better and more universal self is new and unsearchable. Within us is the soul of the whole, the wise silence, the universal beauty to which every part and particle is equally related, the eternal one. When it breaks through our intellect, It is genius. When it breathes through our wall, it is virtue. When it flows through our affections, it is love. Let us continue our meditation with the Buddhist loving-kindness meditation or metta-meditation. We say this through three times. I'll say the line and you say it after me should you choose to. The first time through, we say this for ourselves. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be physically happy. May I have ease of well-being. The second time we say it for someone we love. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. The third time through, as a spiritual stretch, we say this for someone against whom we have a resentment. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. May it be so. I remember the day in um, Theology 101 in seminary where the professor was writing down the belief systems that he thought were probably in the class. And um, it was amazing and kind of disheartening for me to see my belief system just dashed off in five or six points. Uh, He said, yes, this is mystical pietism. It's very popular in Christianity these days. And I thought I had come I had come to this belief system the hard one way, you know, picking through the beliefs I was raised with and changing this and that and late night conversations with friends, deciding, you know, with wine and without wine, um, coming to the conclusions that you come to when you're in your early 20s. 
And I, um, I was a little just taken aback to see it all on the blackboard there. And I remember feeling the same years later when I saw the beliefs of um, Emersonian transcendentalism listed. I thought, good night. I've done it again. I, I've come to this belief system. I thought I was the only one. And, um, and here it is. There's this whole denomination of people whose tent encompasses this particular belief system. So I'm going to list the beliefs of Emersonian transcendentalism for you and talk to you about it a little bit. First, I want to tell you a little bit about him. I've talked to you about him before. I'm sure you remember every single thing I said, but let me just recap for those who weren't there. His father was a Unitarian minister who died when Ralph Waldo, he liked to be called Waldo, when Waldo was eight. So he grew up with just his brothers and sisters and his mom. Um, Several of his brothers and sisters died in childhood. Two more brothers died of tuberculosis as young men. He met a young woman named Ellen Tucker. They met on Christmas Day, and he fell in love. He fell in love hard. And they married in 1827. He was 27, and she was 18. She already had tuberculosis when he fell in love with her and married her. His mother moved to Boston to live with them to take care of Ellen because he was being a Unitarian minister. When Ellen died at 20, Waldo's faith took one more big blow. He grieved terribly. He wrote in his journal a year later that he had gone to visit her grave and dug up her coffin and opened it just so he could see her again. He was just crazed. She had been due to inherit an enormous sum of money when she was 21. And her parents said that she had died before she was 21, so the money was going to stay in the family. But Waldo sued the family to receive the money that had been Ellen's inheritance and won. And so with this money, the the, um, income from this sum paid him the same thing that his job as a minister paid him. So he left his job as a minister and began to write. So he traveled and wrote and spoke, and he supported most of his friends in Concord, Massachusetts. It became a kind of what they call a genius cluster, where they played off of each other's thought. They had late-night conversations. They... Um, ate together, they borrowed money from Emerson, and they, um, they all supported one another's thought. There was uh, Bronson Alcott with his daughter, Louisa May Alcott, and the whole Alcott family. And uh, there was Nathaniel Hawthorne, there was uh, Thoreau, who lived um, on the pond in back with materials that he bought with a loan from Emerson. Margaret Fuller was the beautiful, wild, enormously intelligent woman who would visit from, um, from Boston. There was Lydia, or Lydian, uh, 
Waldo's second wife. He met her. Uh, he proposed by letter because he just didn't have time to go up there and propose in person. He said, I would love to marry you, but I want you to change your name from Lydia to Lydian. Okay? And she said, all right. But this was, you know, people give you all the information you need to have about them in like the first 24 hours, don't they? And the fact that he wrote her to propose and asked her to change her name, that was pretty much all she needed to know. But she married him anyway and, um, and ended up taking care of everyone. Um, she took to her bed whenever Margaret Fuller came. whose guest room was right across from Waldo's study. We don't know. We think Thoreau was in love with Lydia. And anyway, it was just a kind of a cluster, you know, <laughs> of geniuses. So too much had happened for Waldo to be comfortable with the traditional idea of a God whose plan was at work in the world, a God who planned everything and allowed the evil to happen. And if your child died, well, that was just God allowing this terrible thing to happen. Uh, Waldo could not live with an idea of God like that. He was one of those people, like many, many Unitarian Universalists, for whom things need to hang together. You can't just let it wash over you. It's got to make sense. And so the idea of a God who was like that was no God for him. And so what he thought was, where do you, where do you go for another idea of God? Plus, the Christian scriptures at the time were being used to justify slavery, enslaving human beings... Um, not just in the South, my friends. It was everywhere, and Boston was built on slave money. So it was all the slave enslaving of human beings was was everywhere in the atmosphere. There it was the basis for the economies of many many towns and states in the U.S. So the Christian scriptures were profoundly unsatisfying him, plus they were also used to justify the subjugation of women, and he had Margaret Fuller, who was kind of a, a firebrand of feminism. Some of the things she said even back then in the early 1800s would raise eyebrows now, not just in Texas. <laughs> so he, he did not hold much weight. Christian scriptures did not hold much weight with him, or the Jewish scriptures either. Now, the Eastern scriptures of, the, of Buddhism and Hinduism were just beginning to be translated, and they were seeping into the consciousness of the American intellectual world. And so that began to be a place where he would go for inspiration in his thoughts about a different way of seeing God. Plus, he believed that your personal experience was as precious as any scripture. What rang true for you, what made sense to you, given your experience, was what you should go on. So many churches back then asked you to ignore your own experience or asked you to ignore the things that made sense to you. And um, he did not want to do that. 
why he thought were there some moments in life that just catch fire, that glow with meaning and with power? And why do some conversations have a a depth and a quality that makes you feel transcendent? Why do some things you read seem to leap off the page at you and other things just lay there? What is at work here? How do some people seem to be centered in a power that other people do not have flowing through them? And how do most people know what's right and wrong without even being taught? Why do we feel bad when we do something wrong and good when we do something good? What can explain that feeling that there is something more that so many human beings have? And what can explain those experiences of transcendent mystery and wonder that most human beings have? It's kind of unscientific to ignore them. What can explain them? What is, what is it all about? It is certainly, he thought, not that God of the Jewish and Christian scriptures, that doesn't make sense, but what Waldo felt that what Waldo felt was true was that God was imminent, meaning very close. The Quran says God is closer to you than your jugular vein. That God was very close, and that God was in nature and in human beings as part of nature. And that you could learn about God by learning about yourself and about nature. So he felt that, that um, if you taught about miracles where nature is interrupted, that that was monstrous. Because God created nature, is part of nature, and so anything that disrupts nature in a kind of a miraculous way is discounting the glory of God. Emerson said, A human being is a stream whose source is hidden, whose being is pouring in from somewhere else. As the earth lies in the soft arms of the atmosphere, so does each human being lie in the arms of the oversoul. The oversoul is what he called the power the power that's in the seed, the power of life, the power of truth, the power of growth, the mystery that moves through life. The unity with which we are all made one with each other. Can you hear the teachings of the Eastern scriptures that he's been reading? Everything is one. There is a common heart. He wrote, all sincere conversation is its worship. All right action is submission to it. It is the force that makes us feel enlarged by doing good and diminished by doing wrong. He said, within each person is the soul of the whole, the wise silence, the universal beauty to which every part and particle is equally related, the eternal one. And this deep power in which we exist We read this together before our meditation, this deep power in which we exist, whose beatitude is accessible to us. 
When it breathes through our intellect, it is genius. When it breathes through our will, it is virtue. When it flows through our affection, it is love. Emerson was not alone in describing this view of God. There was a Unitarian minister working in Boston at the time, Samuel Reed, who was a tremendous inspiration to Emerson, who was also teaching this to his congregation in the early 1800s, calling for a religion which sees God in everything. Emerson wrote that each person makes his or her own religion, his or her own God. And the way you get to God is by imagining your own soul and spirit at its best, at its most perfect. The highest that you can imagine, that's what you would call God. And he calls this the oversoul. So Emerson opened up the thinking of his time. Emerson and Samuel Reed and the others who were in this cluster, we're talking about how there is maybe one soul of all things. I remember thinking when I was fighting fire ants in South Carolina um, that I thought probably the fire ants just had one brain and that they kind of conspired together. They were really difficult in South Carolina. I don't know if they're difficult here. I don't have them in my yard here. But in South Carolina, they make these mounds of red clay, and you touch the mound, and they boil up out of the red clay, and, um, and they really hurt when they crawl up your leg when you're pruning the roses. I got a little obsessed with them. I'm not anymore. <laughs> but I thought maybe they had one brain, and I just finished reading a wonderful book by Barbara Kingsolver called Flight Behavior, where she talks about the monarch butterfly migration and the scientist and she and the hero of the book have a conversation about how maybe the butterflies just have one brain and move as a an organism and so people do kind of have this thought and but what if it's not just the ants and the butterflies that share a brain what if it is everything that shares one brain or one spirit, one soul, and we are just individual poppings up of that one soul. Something to think about. And what if the one soul makes itself manifest through our actions and our voices when they're creative and when they're useful? What if we can block the stream of the soul that comes through us or open to it in receptivity? What if the health of our soul is in direct proportion to how receptive we are to the stream of, of love and life and truth that is waiting to pour through us? Could this be a way to think about a higher power for those of us who want to think about a higher power? Some of us are very happy with the God we believe in or the God we don't believe in. We're very happy with those things. But if you're you're in flux or in motion, I would invite you to consider the oversoul as a way to think about the mystery. I'm going to read the the list right now. You see if this touches on anything you believe. This is not a creed. The transcendentals don't have a creed. It's just a list somebody put together as things that they could kind of agree on. The human soul is part of the oversoul or the universal spirit. 
Therefore, every individual is to be respected because everyone has a portion of the life force of God, of the oversoul. This oversoul or life force or God can be found everywhere, a deep power in which we exist. The divine can be found both in human nature and in nature. Jesus also had part of the oversoul, so he was as divine as everyone else. The miracles of the Bible are not to be regarded as important as the whole world is a miracle, and the smallest creature is one. More important than a concern about the afterlife should be a concern for this life. Emerson said, the one thing in the world of value is the active soul. Emerson also said, don't ever quote him. He hated quotations. (laughs) That's two. Death is never to be feared, for at death the soul merely passes to the oversoul. Emphasis should be placed on the here and now. Thoreau said, give me one world at a time. Evil is merely an absence of good and not a force in its own right. Light is more powerful than darkness because one ray of light penetrates the dark. One must have faith and intuition and experience for no church or creed can communicate truth. The unity of life and the universe must be realized. There is a relationship and interconnectedness between among all things. So, are you a transcendentalist? I think I am. Do you desire to respect the divine element in yourself and others and the rest of nature? Might you believe that your soul could be expanded by expanding your awareness of the soul in all things? Does it make sense to you that in order to be truly human, we must be in community with others? I think I'm a transcendentalist, and that places me squarely in the middle of our Unitarian and Universalist heritage. If you're more of a humanist, you're also squarely in the middle of our UU tradition. If you're a Christian or a Jew, you're also in the middle of our UU tradition. I love standing in the middle of a broad stream. The stream of thought, yearning, and conversation and action in which we stand is a very large one. It feels good to have so much gone before us, and it feels good to imagine how will the Unitarian Universalists in a hundred years speak of us? Will you please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight, and I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come, and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.